Um, so I'm going to read our passage for this morning for you. We are in Matthew 14, and we're kind of picking up in the middle of an account. So I want to tell you just a tiny bit of like what's happening right as we're going to start, because our friend Herod, who we've talked about in this series, is, is about to do something pretty gruesome and dramatic and so that's where we're picking up, so that the he in the beginning of where I'm reading is, is talking about Herod, King Herod. So we are, we're in Matthew 14, like I said, and we're going to start in verse 10, where it says he, so Herod, he sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. Then they said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you 
are the Son of God. Well, last weekend, uh, Megan, the boys, and I had an opportunity to spend some time in Milford, Ohio. Uh, Milford is a place. It's a suburb of Cincinnati. And uh, it's not just any place. It's a place where I used to live as a kid uh, between the ages of, I think, three to seven. I don't quite remember when we moved there. Uh, But it's the place of like some of my first memories. And so while we're in Milford, I was really excited, and I told Megan and the boys, we need to go and see the old neighborhood where I lived in, Signal Hill, a place in Milford. And we drive in, and we see the, uh, the home that we used to live in. And I, told, and I looked at it, I'm telling the boys, and I don't know if they're really paying attention or not, but I'm having a moment, and like, I'm like, that's the door. That's the door I used to open when I was your age. Uh, that's the window right up there. That window, when I was a little five-year-old, I used to look out of that window. Right there, there's a place. And we drove around the neighborhood, and I pointed out Timmy's house. That was Timmy. Timmy lived there, probably not anymore, but he did. And there was Jamie's house, and Jamie was a friend of mine, a kid. And Jamie was the friend you really wanted to have because like, everyone had Nintendo at that time, but Jamie had all the games, all of the Nintendo games. And so we just had you know, Mario Brothers and RBI Baseball, but Jamie had all of them, Contra, all the best games. And so we'd go to Jamie's house to play. And, and there, and I pointed out, there was the creek we used to go in, and in that creek, we would find T-Rex fossils. T-Rex fossils. We'd pick up these rocks, and you know, this, is, this is probably a fossil, probably a T-Rex fossil right here in my hands, pointing out the places where, we, where I used to live. Uh, then I, we showed them uh, where I went to school. This was Miami Elementary School, and that's the playground where I used to go out and chase after girls and try to kiss them. Don't get any ideas. You probably, probably get in trouble today. But in kindergarten, when I was in kindergarten, that's what we did until we moved to Nashville. And then it was reversed. The girls would chase the boys. You know, that's, how, that's what happened, you know, different place. I don't know what that means about Milford and Nashville, but that's how it played out. And then showed them the baseball uh, diamond where I played t-ball and, and, you know, had dreams of one day playing, being a professional baseball player. And we didn't make it to the church where I went to, Megan, by that time, she's like, you know, I think we might need to be heading home. Uh, But I looked it up on my phone, and it's still there. Same place where I went to Sunday school and learned about God. It was a good time. And there was that moment when looking back, being in that place with those memories, where I I looked back on childhood, and I thought, man, that was a good time. Good time. Being a kid. And then what happens in life? Life happens. Things get complicated. You know, when you're a kid, you have a home, and there's the door and the window and the place where you play. But you know, when you get a little older, a home isn't just a place with a door and a window, but it's, it's a place that you have to pay for. You don't just see the door, you see the, the cost. It's a little different. As you get older, those, those memories of playing in the creek, and someone comes along and says, no, those aren't T-Rex fossils. You naive child, that's just a rock. And people come along and they see, they say, you know, you just can't chase girls anymore in the playground. That's not how this works. You can go to prison for that. <laughs> and, and our walk with God also gets complicated. You know, you had that Sunday school where you just, you just believed what the Sunday school said with the nice 
preacher person said, what your parents said, but, you know, life teaches you other lessons. You can't just have this Sunday school faith anymore. Life gets complicated, and, and we don't know what to do. And we wonder how to move forward. How do we live in the midst of the complexities of life? How do we have faith in the midst of the complexities and problems of life? When you're young, it's simple. And even if you come from hard circumstances, it's simple. You're not fully aware of all the, the complications. But as you grow older, you become aware. How do we move forward? That's what we want to look at today. We've been going through the Gospel of Matthew and... In the Gospel of Matthew, we've seen Jesus as the king. And we've looked at what that means. Uh, the authority that Jesus has over the natural and supernatural world. We looked at that a few weeks ago. Last week, we looked at what it means when Jesus becomes authority in our life. How to follow him. And this week, we look at what that, what that looks like when life gets really complicated. Because it will. And we have here in our passage two uh, familiar Stories you may have heard of, Jesus feeding thousands of people and Peter walking on water, Jesus walking on water and Peter coming out of the boat. And it's interesting, you know, the feeding of the few thousand, all of the gospel writers record this miracle. It's actually the only one that they record. All four record this miracle. It was a very important and prominent act. And each of them are saying something. They record it in a, in a bit of a unique view of what's happening. And Matthew, what is Matthew trying to say in this miracle? He's wanting to illustrate a point. He's not just recording random acts. And one of the things, Matthew, he puts both the miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, and he also wants you connect, to connect it to the water because he says immediately he made the disciples get into the boat. So we see this connection here. What's Matthew trying to say? What's he wanting us to see? And, and we, can, we pick it up in Jesus' question to Peter. Jesus' question in verse 31. Jesus is on the water. Peter wants to get out of the boat. He says, invite me to come. Jesus says, come. And Peter, he's, he's a bit amazed at what's happening, walking on the water. But then he sees the wind and the storm and he becomes terrified. And he begins to sink. And Jesus reaches out his hand. Look at what he says. And sometimes Jesus says these things and they, they frustrate us. Look at Jesus. What does he say? Oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? Oh, you of little faith. You know, what I want to say, if I'm Peter right here, I'm thinking, what? Jesus, I'm actually on the water. What about those guys? They didn't even get out. And Jesus, give me, cut me a break here. I mean, there's this, we're walking on water, Jesus. I think it's pretty clear why I'm afraid. He says, ye of little faith, why do you doubt? And Jesus says things like this. He says, like, he says stuff like, you know, don't worry. Or do not be afraid. Do not doubt. I mean, who chooses to be worried? Who chooses fear? Who chooses doubt? You don't choose those. They just happen to you. In light of the circumstances. So what is Jesus trying to say? You know, one of the things we see that what he's doing here, he's not testing Peter. You know, we want ye of little faith. You know, we think this is some kind of test. What Jesus is doing and why Matthew has this here, Jesus is teaching. He's teaching Peter. 
He's teaching his disciples and he's teaching something for us. How do we live by faith in the storms and needs and complexities of life? That's what we'll look at this morning. What it means to not just believe in Jesus, but to actually live by faith because life has doubts. Jesus, the doubt didn't cast Peter out. Jesus doesn't say, oh, doubter, well, good luck. (laughs) If you're someone here and the complexities of life have led you to question God and doubt and wonder and have very important and serious questions, it's not going to cast you out either. In fact, all through the Bible, everyone doubts. There's this chapter in a book of Hebrews in the New Testament Uh, Chapter 11, which sometimes Christians, we call this the hall of faith. We have these silly things, you know, we call this stuff like that. Hall of faith. And then it records all these prominent people of faith. But when you go back and read their stories, you know, Abraham doubted God's promises. Moses doubts God's deliverance. Gideon, we looked at him a few years ago. He doubts God's presence. David doubts God's power. Peter doubting God, doubt doesn't count you out. But what we find in the midst of the doubts, in the midst of the questions, in the, mix, in the midst of the complexities, God can move these just ordinary doubters to be people who live by faith. And so what does that look like for us? How can we trust God in the midst of the doubts and complexities of life? And we'll, we're just going to look at two things. Uh, one, why we doubt. Why we doubt it. There's a lot of reasons. We'll only look at a few that we see in, in, the, in our passage. Why we doubt and then why we can trust Jesus. The reality of doubt and the response of Jesus to the doubts. Uh, first, why we doubt. Reasons that we, we struggle to trust God amidst the complexities. We look at the world. We see things. We, we question God. The first thing we see is Uh, When we see evil flourish, we doubt God's promises. When we see evil, we doubt the goodness and promises of God. In verse 13, when Jesus heard this, what did Jesus hear? And we we read it at Herod Antipas. He throws this feast. He has a meal. And in this meal, he has John the Baptist beheaded. And John the Baptist was a cousin and friend of Jesus. John the Baptist was someone that many of Jesus' followers, his disciples, they were formerly followers of John before they followed Jesus. It would have been someone they would have known. And what do they do? How does Jesus respond? He, He takes his disciples and they go away to grieve. They go away to lament. And that, of course, makes sense. You know, they look at this. And what are you thinking if you're a disciple of Jesus right here? You're thinking, oh, man. Uh, here I thought we had a good thing going, and then we're reminded of the injustices of life. Herod, this wicked leader, has John killed. Evil has its way. Maybe you can relate, maybe they can relate with these kind of comments in the Old Testament from prophets. Habakkuk says, to God, why do you remain silent when the wicked devours one more righteous? Where are you, God? You talk about being good. 
and the wicked are flourishing. Where were you, God? Where are you? Or maybe this lament from David might resonate with you. In Psalm 73, he says, Behold, such are the wicked. They are always at ease, and they increase their riches. Or maybe Jeremiah the prophet, and this will be on the screen, he just puts it really directly. He asks God, Why does the way of the wicked succeed? God, we talk about justice, but why does injustice succeed in the world? God, where are you? Some of us, we doubt, we doubt God's promises. We doubt, we doubt God's power when we see evil flourish. Another reason many of us doubt, especially when you're wanting to make a difference in the world, you're wanting to help, you're saying, you know, there's bad guys and evil, and man, I want to contribute, I want to make a difference, but then life sobers you up. When we see the immensity of the need, the needs of the world, Many of us, we doubt God's provision. Have you ever felt overwhelmed? <laughs> just, just overwhelmed. Not up to the task. That's what the disciples are feeling right here when thousands of people show up. Thousands of people show up. The disciples and Jesus, they're wanting to be alone. They're wanting to grieve. They're at a desolate place. They're wanting time to grieve the loss of their friend. And what happens? A thousand people show up, and they're not showing up to say, oh, you know what, is there anything we can do for you guys? You look sad. Can we? No, they're showing up with their own needs. And it's interesting about a crowd, what a crowd says. For us today in our culture, a crowd communicates success. When we read this, we think, oh, a few thousand people following Jesus. You know, he must, he must have been doing some really good, important things. A few disciples were like, you know, anyone can get a few people, but a crowd... Wow, this, is, this must be good and important. You know, in, in their time, that's not how they, they viewed a crowd. In their culture, crowds actually weren't to be trusted because they felt that the cares for the masses sometimes bent toward, toward selfish means. But also, there's something the disciples would have been feeling right here. And that's a crowd, thousands of people, require care. <laughs> um. They didn't live in an age where there were just fast food restaurants, food at any corner. A crowd just shows up, and in their age that prioritized hospitality, you needed to care for these people. And so the disciples look, they see the crowd, and what do they say? They say, now this is a desolate place, and the day is over. Send them away. Jesus, we look, I know I, we see you over here heal, healing some people, and that's nice. It's, it's, it's drawn a lot of people. Good job, Jesus. But here, there's a problem. They're going to get hungry, and we can't feed them. We can't meet this need. They need to go away. Send them away. The disciples are being very rational. They're, they're wanting to care for these people, and they look at the people as a need that can't be satisfied. You ever feel that? You look at a situation, you look at a crowd, you look at a person, and you just feel the inadequacy. What, what can I offer? Thousands of people. I, we can't feed them, Jesus. Send them away. Do you ever look at a need and think, you know, what, what can I do? We're in over our head. These, 
These people can't be cared for. What do you do in those moments? You know, I think of maybe the feeling a single parent might have. They look at their child or children, the needs here. You think, what? what can I do? What can I do? How am I going to raise this child? Think of what a teacher often feels. A teacher, especially a teacher who loves their, their students and they care about their students and they realize their students, some of whom all of the kids come, have different needs, but some students, they come from really hard places and, and the teacher thinks, man, I want, it's not enough for me to just be here and teach a lesson. I want to care, but how do I care? What can I do? What can I do? The need is so great. I think of social workers trying to make a difference. And you know, you sign up, you want to make a difference. You pursue social work because you believe in something. You see the needs and you think, I want to make a difference. And then you start to work and you start to invest and you think, hi, what What can I do? How can I, what, what difference can I really make? You know, many of us, we look and we see the needs of the world and we, and we just we think, what can be done? What can be done? Send them away. Many of us doubt God's provision. We see the immensity of the need. Others of us, when we see the personal storm, we doubt God's presence. You know, we look at the world, we see evil and injustice out here, and we have questions. And then we see the needs out right near us, but then it can become personal. And it becomes personal. We, we feel the pain and anguish. And we question, where are you, God? And this is what happened to Peter. In verse 28, Peter answers him. Lord, if it is you walking on the water, ask me to come out. Jesus said, come on out, Peter. Peter gets out of the boat and walks on the water. And approaches Jesus. And what happens? Verse 30. When he saw the wind, he was afraid. He sees the wind. He sees the storm. They're not walking on just a calm water. They're walking in the midst of a storm. He sees the wind. He's afraid. He sees something. He's terrified. Peter, he looks at the wind, and the wind and the storm represents what he can't control. Can't control a storm. He's afraid. He's terrified. The storm exposes his limitations. It exposes his humanity. It exposes his personal need. And it brings fear. What do you see that can bring fear? What are you afraid of? He saw something and he's afraid. What do you see that brings real legitimate fear? You know, some of us, when we're kids, you know, we, we kind of have silly fears. Um, I, as a kid, I used to, I, I think I've shared this before, I was afraid we'd watch Unsolved Mysteries, and I was afraid Lee Harvey Oswald was hiding in my closet. He was going to come out, you got JFK, he's going to come out and get me. You know, you can try to, there's just a little bit of an irrational fear. We have those as kids. Or, you know, we're afraid of uh, the Sith Lord and, you know, what they're going to do, and they're going to come out. Uh, and then when you grow up, yeah, for some reason, I, I still have fears. I was out in our backyard the other night, and I heard squealing. 
squealing above me. It's probably some possum. And, and I ran inside and texted Megan. There's, I'm hearing noises outside. You know, laughing at me. We have sometimes silly fears. But then there's, there's very real fears. Very real fears. Is there anything that you've seen that brings fear? Uh, some of us, we've seen the power of a person. A person in your life. A person who had power over you and could bring harm. Very real fear. Abuse. Power of a person. Reminded of the power of uh, sickness. Sickness, things. What do we do here? And you hear, what I've been told is you're never prepared in that moment when the doctor gives you the diagnosis and, and they say things, there's, there's like medical terms. You hear like you have renal cell carcinoma, you have invasal ductal carcinoma, and you think, what is that? Words, I, I, I didn't, these weren't in my vocabulary. And then you, you learn, oh, this is kidney cancer. Or, oh, this is breast cancer. And now your whole life, your whole trajectory has changed. Now you're, you're reading about it. You're learning about it. What can be done? What do I do? What can I control? What can I eat better? How, how do we battle this? We launch an effort. Sometimes, and for all of us, eventually, at some point, there's just some things we can't. We have the name for it, but we, we don't have the power to overcome it. What brings you fear? You know, this is what life does, right? We, when we're young, hmm, we have the dreams, oh, I'm going to play baseball. What, I, the big, my attention was, am I going to play baseball or professional football? So hard. As a kid, I didn't know which one. So I'll be like Deion Sanders and do both one day. That's what I, and then, Life plays out, and you realize, no, I can't. You think when you're young, oh, we're going to live forever, and then one day the doctor has news for you. Life has complexities, and they bring doubts and very real questions. And so what do we do? What do we do when that happens? We began looking Outward injustice, and then right in front of us, and then personally, let's look at Jesus' response, but first beginning personally, and then moving out. All we see is that when we look to Jesus, we see an anchor. We see an anchor for the storms of life. When we look to him, we see an anchor. Peter on the water. He says, becomes afraid, and he begins to sink, and he cries out, Lord, save me, right there. You know, Peter, he, he's not rationally playing out. Oh, well, what's the... No, he cries out. Lord, save me. And what does Jesus do? He reaches out his hand and he takes a hold of him. In those moments, we just need something to hold to. What are you holding to in life? What is your anchor? What is your ballast? What is your foundation when the storms of life come? What are you holding to? You know... It's really interesting. We've, we're reading the Gospel of Matthew, but the Gospel of John, when he records the feeding 
of the 5,000, Jesus at the end, he has this interesting teaching. He teaches that he is the bread of life. Jesus he feeds, he gives bread and he says, I am the bread of life. And he, he says things like, unless you eat of my flesh, you will not taste of the kingdom of God. And, and you know what happens? The, the crowds, they hear that and they're like, what is he talking about? Eat of his flesh, this is ridiculous. And what happens? John chapter 6, verse 66 And after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Now, the disciples here are not the 12. Jesus had a larger following of people. And they hear Jesus teach this. They see him do this. And they're like, I'm out. (laughs) This, no, this, what he's saying doesn't compute with my lens of what is right and true. Gone. And Jesus in this moment, he looks at his, the 12 disciples and he says, do you want to go away as well? Are you going to leave too? The storms come. Things get dicey. Are you going to leave too? Others are leaving. And look at Peter. And, and right here, if we could just drill down to just the essence of what we're saying, it's right here. Verse 68, Peter says to him, Lord, To whom shall we go? Where will we go, God? To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And this is what you must know. When your doubt moves you away from Jesus, it is moving you to something else. All of us, all of us are looking for a word to give hope and meaning and life. We are humans. We cannot help but make meaning. We cannot help to hope. Who are you holding on to in the midst of the storm? Whom are you going to for the word of your life? Who is it? Maybe for you, the complexities of life come. You think, man, I need something tangible. I need something real. I need politicians, political party. That I can hold on to. But you know, it's interesting because every four to eight years, the parties just switch, Republican to Democrat and Democrat to Republican. You know why? Because neither ultimately fulfills on the promises that they make. It's so much easier when you're out of office, out of power to just criticize the other because they make outlandish promises that they won't see fulfilled. Maybe, you know, in the storms of life, you think, I'm going to cling to my family. I'm going to cling to the people. I'm going to cling to my church. I'm going to cling to these relationships and friendships. And then, and then life sobers you up to that. Often the people we love the most, the people we look to and trusted, they let us down. Maybe you say, you know, I can only trust myself. Only trust me. And that's kind of the message of our day. You know, everyone else, just believe in yourself. And that doesn't last very long. We let ourselves down. We let others down. We're brought to our limitations. Jesus, in the midst of the storms, he reaches out his hand. And he offers us an anchor, a word to give life. 
why we can trust Jesus amidst the complexities. Also, when we look to Jesus, we see the one who truly nourishes. In the feeding of the thousands, Jesus, he says to his disciples, Jesus says, they need not go away. Do not send the crowd away. You give them something to eat. You feed them. I wish the disciples are like, Jesus, what in the world? You know, I can just imagine their conversation they're having. You know, Philip goes to Jesus. Jesus, we need to send them away. There's not food here. Send them away. Jesus says to Peter, no, they're staying. You feed them. Philip's like, okay. Goes back to the other disciples. I told them, I told Jesus, we need to send them away. And Jesus said, we need to feed them. Like, we need to feed them. And they're like, Philip, what are you doing? This is crazy. And why does Jesus do this? Look. They said, we only have five loaves here and two fish. And Jesus says, bring them here to me. Bring what you have to me. And here's the point. It's not, you know, if you find yourself in a hard spot, just pray to God and he'll bail you out. No, this is recording that Jesus has what we all ultimately need. He's the one who's going to work. He's the one who nourishes. You know, when you try to make a difference in the world, when you try to serve, you will be brought to your limitations. And that will drive you in one or two ways. Either it will drive you to just be cynical, send them away, Or it can drive you into greater faith and dependence on God to say, you know what? We we will not solve the riddle of everything, but we can feed these people and we can bring them to Jesus. You know, sometimes Christians, we we have silly cliche things that we say that don't make sense. Uh, A saying like, maybe you've heard this one, God doesn't give you more than you can handle. God doesn't give you more than you can handle. That is the dumbest, most unhelpful thing. God right here, the disciples, there's more than they can handle. You know what I hear when I hear a statement like that? I think, well, I guess the problem's on me. I guess, I guess I need a better plan. There's more. God wouldn't give me more than I can handle here. God gives us more than we can handle all the time because he wants He wants to bring us to a place where we bring what we can't handle to him so that he can. We come to our limitations. And this is why it's so, so important. The disciples, they're just like the people in the crowd. They're just like the people. All of them needing Jesus. And when we're in a place of caring for others, you know that is the most important thing we need to hear? When we're caring for those in need, to say to them, you know, I might be able to help you here in this hard spot, but we're no different. We're no different. No different. We all need the nourishment that only Jesus can provide. We look to Jesus and we are reminded that he's the one who nourishes. And lastly, why we can trust Jesus. When we look to him, when we look to Jesus, we see that injustice does not have the final word. Injustice doesn't have the final word. We're reminded of the situation Jesus and the disciples find themselves in. Herod Antipas here, he has executed their friend. And they're grieving. This is sad. This is not okay. 
This is wrong. Jesus, in the Gospel of Luke, he confronts, he's faced with this same Herod, Herod Antipas, while he's on trial. About to be crucified, Pilate sends Jesus to Herod Antipas. Pilate doesn't want to deal with him. He sends him to this Herod, Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas is excited. He wants to see Jesus. He's heard about him. It says he's heard about Jesus and he's hoping for a sign. He's hoping for a word. He's hoping for something from Jesus in this moment. And what do we see in verse 8? When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him. These crowds, thousands of people had followed him. What's Jesus going to do? Herod wants to know. He was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at length. But he made no answer. Jesus had no response, just silence. Just silence. And the chief priests and scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. Here's Jesus, and here's the chief priest, and here's Herod. The chief priests and scribes are accusing Jesus. And Herod's thinking, Jesus, respond, please. I have the power to execute you. And Jesus, what does he do? He's just silent. Just silent. Now, this is a bad Hollywood moment. If I was directing this right here, you know what would happen? Jesus He looks, sees the scribes and chief priests. He sees Herod. He knows this is the same Herod who executed his friend. And they're wanting an answer. If I'm Jesus right here, oh, I give them the answer. Chains break. And I'd say something really cool like, Herod, I'm going to sign your ticket to hell. (laughs) Boom. Jesus, he's just silent. And we feel that, don't we feel that? We look at the, we look at the evil, we look at the injustices, and we're like, God, don't you have a word? Don't you, don't you have something right here? And Jesus is silent because he knows, he knows where he will speak. He will speak on the cross and in the resurrection. The cross is the word. And the resurrection is the power. All of us, we have questions. We look at, world. where is God in the storm? Where is God when the need feels so great? Where is God in the evil? Does he have something to say? We have questions and we want to know. And when we look to Jesus... When we look to his work on the cross and his victory over death. Now, now, like Peter, to whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? You have the words of life. And when Jesus becomes the word of your life, in the midst of the doubts, in the midst of the questions, where your doubt doesn't cast you out, you have something to hold to. There is a word stronger than your own. Will you trust in Jesus? Will you do more than just believe in him? Will you trust him? Let's pray. Lord, life is so complicated. 
we long for that time when it seemed a bit easier, a bit simple. Uh, felt like we had more answers. Life brings us to a place where we often have just more questions. And, and God, we're thankful that you are a God that doesn't send us away. You welcome us to come close so that we can trust you. And God, I know we're all here and we're in different places in this. And I just pray that, uh, that we would have the courage to come to you. And just be open. You know, life, it, it brings the cynicism. It brings the questions. And we can often be carried away by that storm. Help us in the midst of that to, to fight to see the goodness of your son. Amen.